want you to find Luke chapter 15 in your copy of the scripture, if you would. And one more time, we're going to look at this story that Jesus made up, that Jesus crafted to illustrate, to explain the heart of the Father. John chapter 1 verse 18 will say that Jesus came for this very purpose, that he might explain the Father. So if you want to know what the invisible God the Father is like, what his personality is like, what his heart is like, what he dislikes, what he likes, we just need to look into the life of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so wonderful and amazing that we have four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are devoted in their entirety to nothing other than recording for our enlightenment, recording for our encouragement, the life of Jesus, who he was, what he said, what he did, how he responded. And all of that was for the purpose of us helping, of us coming to know, being helped in our understanding of what God really is like. I want you to just join me in um, sitting at the feet of Jesus this morning, if you would, with your Bibles open, and we, we look into this passage again. Now, all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. I, I, I read that every time we come to this chapter because I'm convinced that we can't appreciate the impact of these words and the stories that he's telling unless we can, we can get our handle on who he was telling the stories to. The tax gatherers and the sinners were, were that, that um, immoral lot, that um, morally despicable lot. They, they were, were not trusted. They were not wanted to be around. They were not liked. They were just um, thought of as, particularly the tax gatherers, as, as thieves and liars and traitors to their own people and um, collecting money for profit, taxes for profit. Um, and they were, they were filthy rich. They, had, um, they lived in a lap of luxury, lived like small kings. Um, but all they had was just each other, just this, this, this common bond between despicables, between the thieves, because nobody else would give them the time of day except for Jesus, except for Jesus. Now, folks, I hope you'll get from this permission Permission. The example of Jesus gives us permission. We don't have to ask the Lord about certain things, about the things that we saw Jesus doing. We just know that he did everything he did in a way that was approved of by heaven, approved of by his father. He said, I don't, I don't do anything except I see my father do it. I don't say anything except I hear my father say it. So where he was, who he was with, what he did, we have permission to follow in like manner. So where was he in this occasion? He was in the company of a mixed group of people. On the one hand, it was the morally despicables. You, you, you pick out, as we've said, you pick out your most morally despicable lifestyle and or profession. And you take that name, what that name is to you, and you insert that in the place of tax gatherers in the Scripture. Everywhere you see tax gatherers, you pull the group or the individual, the, the lifestyle, the profession, the most morally despicable to you, and you put that here. Jesus found himself one more time. And it was something of a pattern for him. It, it wasn't an unusual deal. Luke will say... It looked like all of the tax gatherers and all of the sinners, those would be the ones that were, that um, actually the word for, for sin um, means to deviate, to deviate from the accepted pattern or the desired norm. The, 
ones who lived their lives in ways that were deviant from other people, from the religious people of the day. They collected with each other because they had that common thing among themselves that they, they, weren't, um, they weren't trying to live in a way that would please God or they were concerned about what other people necessarily thought about them. But those seemed to some way or another be, just be drawn to Jesus. The most holy being, the purest soul that ever walked the face of the earth. That was Jesus, the God-man. No sin in him. No pull in the direction of attracted to what Satan might offer, though he was tempted as we would be tempted, yet without sin, the Scripture says. Even though he was the purest of the pure, the most innocent of the innocent, he still allowed himself to be in the company of those who were known for their reckless lives and their jettisoning of the things of God and just doing it their own way. Permission granted. When you find yourself in a situation like that, it's not a situation to run from necessarily. It's a situation to immediately be asking, Lord, what am I here for? And help me out here, Lord. I don't fit here. I'm not comfortable with everything that's going on here. But Lord, as Jesus was in, this, in situations like this, I want you to shine your light out through me. I want to be a light into this world instead of running from it. We have permission. We have permission to engage the world to create and establish and cultivate friendships with ones who may be completely different in many different ways than the way we have chosen to live because we believe it's right. Look at Jesus. It it will go on to say in verse 2 that the Pharisees and the scribes, the other end of the moral spectrum, began to grumble saying, this man, speaking of Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. The word for receive there means to receive kindly, to receive as a friend. He he sought to be friends with the tax gatherers and the sinners. It didn't mean that he agreed with everything, but meant that he cared about them, that that they, they were deserving respect as a human being, as a person, as someone created in the image of God. Folks, We've got to understand that. We've got to let that in. Jesus gives us permission to look for, to establish, and to cultivate friendships with ones who are not in the family of faith, who don't understand our Christian jargon, who may not have voted the same way we voted, who may not be spending Saturday nights and Friday nights the same places we may be spending them. But if we don't see what Jesus is doing here and accept this as a pattern that he wants us to adopt, as I mentioned to you before, and it's with great sadness that I say it, the church in America, the church in San Antonio, us as an individual Christian can become culturally irrelevant. It's as if we don't even matter because we dance with ourselves, we look at each other, we just talk to Christians, we just go with Christians, we just cultivate Christian relationships. We are to be in the world, just not of the world. Can somebody say amen? Y'all are real quick. Sometimes it gets real lonely up here because I, I realize I'm saying some stuff that steps on some toes. I just just go ahead and say ouch if it, you know, if it hits you. Just ouch. I, I'd take that as an amen, preach it, preacher. I, I would. We, we, we are not to look at each other, folks as to how we conduct ourselves in this day and age. We are to cut through the centuries, cut to the chase, and look at Jesus. If he found himself in some questionable places with some more than questionable people, then if we're following him, we have permission to be in some of those places too, period. If it doesn't need to be debated by this preacher or that preacher or that Bible study group or this this, uh, source of input, look at Jesus. 
Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. If he did it, we have permission to go for it. If he avoided it, then we need to respond to that and back away. So who was he talking to? Mixed crowd. You got the morally despicables, and you got the religiously elite, the Pharisees. The ones that the word Pharisee comes from a word that means strict, strict adherence to the law of Moses as they understood it. They prided themselves in keeping the letter of the law, uh, the, the thou shalt nots and the thou shalts, and then they just got to write more, uh, uh, you know, add more asterisks and some more subpoints to the actual laws of God. They were adding some other things to them to make sure they didn't miss the law of God, so they, they set up these, these boundaries way back here so they wouldn't mess up. That they would stop themselves here before they got there. And then they would get to imposing all of that on everybody else and judging people as to whether or not their behavior was really right in the sight of God on the basis of what they had chosen to do. That they took their standard of measure, and some of it wasn't even God. It was just fear. It was, it was creating a system. And they, they would impose those rules of behavior on the rest of the people. And as a result, there were folks that didn't want anything to do with the, with the Pharisees either. Just like folks didn't want to have anything to do with the morally despicables, the religiously elite were just sort of off to themselves too because they were so righteous and so spiritual and so pious and so good and so moral that real people didn't feel like they could relate to them and real people would look at them and feel like they're hypocrites. They, they can't live that way. Jesus has two groups making up his congregation when he tells these stories. And the last story that he tells, he speaks to both of them. He's speaking to both groups. But folks, here's what I want you to hear. Even though Jesus in his heart knows that the way of the transgressor is hard, he knows that, that you, the, the wages of sin is death, and, and so you have these great transgressors that are, that are there. But instead of climbing all over them, Instead of lecturing them, taking advantage of this opportunity, just lecture them on how many places they've missed the, the keeping of the law. That's not the subject that he takes up. It is the subject of the mercy in the Father's heart, the kindness in the Father's heart, the strength in the Father's heart of loyalty to you, who you really are. You are not in this wrapper that... People would think that you are as a tax gatherer or as this immoral person. That's not who you really are. The Father knows you. The Father knows you're a child who has run away, but you can be restored. So he tells them that. Then, then he, he look over at the, at the Pharisees, and, and, and that, that's another group. He, he, could have, he could have gone off on them. Micah 6, 8, you Pharisees. Don't you know what Micah said? What does the Lord require of you except that you love, you do what's right? You love mercy, Pharisees. You're supposed to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. He could have lectured them on the things they weren't doing right. He could have told the, 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 the despicables how messed up they were. They already knew it, and he understood that, so he was going to give them a way out. He could have come after the Pharisees in the ways that they would be guilty but he didn't. He didn't do that. He tells this story, the third of three, about a father who has two sons. Now, I got to repeat a little bit of this to make sure we get it. The father has two sons. Jesus is writing the story. He speaks it, but he creates the characters. He creates the dialogue he creates the plot, and he establishes the outcome. It is a made-up story. It is a fictional story. And it is for the sole purpose of saying in ways that normal people can understand two things. One's more important than the other. The most important one is, here's what the Father's heart is for people. 
And especially ones who don't deserve his mercy, he remains loyal. He remains strong. He remains kind. That's the Father's heart. He's establishing that. But the second minor point, secondary point is he's just letting us know (laughs) that he understands people. He understands about brothers. He understands the dynamic of a wealthier father and a, and a son, a young son who wants everything that's got coming to him. And he understands the pull of the far country. He understands what it means to run out of everything and not have anything to eat and to have no friends. He understands what it is to come to your senses, for a person to come to their senses. And what, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? What have I walked away from? And the coming home, and then somewhere or another, he understands a father, a father's heart for that runaway son whom he loved dearly and whom he never gave up on. And how the father would, would watch daily in hopes that that boy would be retracing his steps and be coming home. And how when the, when the father, Jesus in the story, Jesus telling the story, Jesus crafted this. An angel didn't tell him. He didn't get to some, some human secondary source. This came out of his heart, out of his understanding that the father saw the son. And when he saw the son coming down the road, the father got up and Jesus is saying in his story, and the father ran, ran to meet that boy. And when he got to the boy, it says he, Jesus used the word, he fell on his neck. That means he just hugged him tight around the neck. And then in the imperfect tense, he kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him. And he continuous action in pastime is the verb tense of that. He just kept on kissing. And then when the boy started his prepared speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, if I could just come and work for you. Then Jesus in the story, the, Jesus said that the daddy doesn't even respond to the boy. He's evidently still hugging on the boy, still holding him close, and the boy starts trying to talk. He finishes his speech, and the daddy doesn't even respond to it. The daddy just starts barking orders to the servants. You go get a robe, best robe. You go get sandals. You go get a ring, you put it on his finger, and you go get that fat calf out there. Chase that thing down and barbecue it because we're going to have, we're going to have a celebration because my son, my son who was dead, he's alive again. My boy who was lost has been found. And I'm, you know, when I'm hollering and I'm kind of spitting out of Christ, I, I don't know what Jesus might have told it that way. And he said, and you spread the word among the servants. We're going to be married. Why? Because my son, who was lost, has been found. The one who was dead is back home again. Jesus put it that way. Jesus, who came to express, to explain the heart of God, used those words, used those emotional arrangements, Use the progression of that plot, use the outcome at that point for the specific purpose of saying back to these runaways, these tax gatherers and these sinners, that your father, your real father, hasn't given up on you. And he hasn't quit loving you. And you may think that It would be a fearful thing to come home again, to come back to him, to come back under his influence in your life. But it's anything but difficult. It'll be anything but harsh. It'll be the sweetest, most joyful, richest time in your life. Come on home. Come on back. Come on home. That's what the story was doing. And don't you reckon they heard that? To have been thought that they were ostracized forever, that because the godly people would turn away from them, didn't even want to be around them, then that must be how God feels. If all these people who know all this Bible and know all this scripture and keep all the feasts and do all the things right, if they think we're less than dirt, then that must be how God thinks. Jesus came to say, that's not how your father 
The image that you have of these godly people, these Bible people, their image, what their attitude is toward you is not the heart of your father. It, it, It was not that the Pharisees were wrong to disapprove of the choices and to not accompany the tax gatherers and the sinners in the choices that they made. But where they were wrong is that there's no hope for these. There's no future for these because they're not like we are. They're not choosing to do what we're choosing to do. Then there's just no hope for them. God's given up on them, so we don't have to have paid attention. And Jesus came to say, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. Don't ever give up on the mercy of God. Don't ever give up on the mercy of God. Don't ever give up on the mercy of God. Can I say it one more time? Don't ever give up on the mercy of God. He's strong in his mercy. He's loyal in his mercy. He's kind in his mercy. The scripture would say Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. So it's obvious as he tells his story He's wanting to seek and save the lost despicables. But what about the religiously elite? What about their lostness? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know who wrote that? You want to know who references that? An ex- Pharisee named Saul, who became Paul. We we miss it. If every time we see the name or the word Pharisee come up in Scripture, that we just assume that forever they remained in the place of arrogance and judgment and accusation and condemnation of others who weren't tracking with them. There were some who probably lived their lives, died, and went into an eternity away from God because they never got what Jesus was trying to say. But there was one who got it. Two-thirds of the New Testament that's on your lap this morning that you're following along as I read these that was written by a former Pharisee. Somewhere along the line, This Jesus who came to seek and to save that which was lost caught him a few Pharisees too. Saul being one of them. Likened unto the older brother. But I want you to notice how Jesus doesn't respond, the father's response, the character created by Jesus, how the father doesn't respond to the older brother and how he does respond to the older brother. Luke chapter 15 and verse 25. Now his older brother, his older son, excuse me, his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he, the older brother, heard music and dancing. Jesus, Jesus is telling the story, okay? This is Jesus talking who understands God, and who understands people. He creates this character, creates this dialogue for the purpose of explaining. Jesus says in verse 26, And he, the older brother, summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, the servant said to the older brother, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, became angry. Now, how did Jesus know (laughs) that an older brother was liable to get angry at a younger brother in this set of circumstances? Because Jesus understands people. He understands how we think. He understands how things can affect us. He understands. 
He became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out. His father came out and began entreating him. The father came out to where the older brother was. The older brother couldn't share in the celebration. He was still so ticked at the younger brother for a variety of reasons that he didn't want to be in the same place. Thought his father had gone nuts. Thought the whole thing was crazy. He wouldn't come in. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. The father in the story leaves the son who has come home and goes out to where the older brother, the older son is. And the father begins to entreat him. We would understand what that means. It can be the the word to plead. He begins to plead with the older brother. He begins to, he begins to, and they can even beg, strong entreaty. Reason, began to reason with the older brother. Trying to get the older brother to understand where he, the father, was coming from. That if anybody ought to be the most offended, it should be the father at what the younger son has done, right? Took the inheritance, pillaged the family name, didn't know if he'd ever be back. If anybody should have been the most offended, it should have been the father himself, not the firstborn son. And the father would say, well, let me read what the older brother says first, verse 29. But he answered, even as the father is trying to work with him and goes out to meet him and tries to reason with him, plead with him, he answered and said to his father, okay, now look, these are the words of Jesus. This is not Isaiah. This is not Moses. This is not Jeremiah. This is Jesus saying these words, choosing this dialogue, choosing these phrases. Here's, here's the dialogue that he, or the, the, what he puts into the, into the older brother to say, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a kid, a kid goat, that I might be merry with my friends. You can just stop right there, push your chair back, wait a leg, cock it back against the wall, and say, thank you, Jesus. You say, why? Because he understands how possible it is for us to get upset with his ways. That he doesn't do things all the time in ways that we're going to understand. But instead of us, it, that we have to just automatically, okay, that's fine, Lord. I'm, I'm going to just com- completely commit intellectual suicide here and go with you. We have permission to voice these kinds of things. God, it just seems like that's unfair. It doesn't seem like it's right. I hadn't missed a lick. I hadn't stole or taken anything from you. I hadn't slandered the family name. Why would you be doing this to that knuckleheaded brother of mine who's trashed everything we stand for and wasted our inher- his inheritance? But Jesus made that a part of the dialogue. You know what I believe the Lord hates the most? Or I can't say hate. He resists it. It's phoniness. It's phoniness. It's crazy theological thing, you're sick as a dog, you know, you got some stomach virus or you got your knees hurting, you got something, but for goodness sake, you can't go to church and say you've been throwing up all night or that your knee won't work because they'll come back, well, where's your faith? Where's your faith? If you had faith, you'd have just rebuked the devil and you'd have, oh, oh, hush. I want to just get right in their face and just, what are you talking? Don't do that to the church. You can tell the truth. You can say, you know, I don't know. I feel like it came from the devil. I don't know what happened, but I've been sick. I hadn't felt good. Would y'all pray for me? There are some, some settings in which you can't even really raise your hand and say, would you pray for me because of the fear of being judged if you admit that something's going wrong. 
That is not the real Jesus. That is a fabricated, manufactured, phony, non-biblical, non-New Testament Jesus. Period, so be it, so let it be written, so let it be done. Jesus didn't, he, he, he let the boy, the older brother, say the things that the older brother was feeling. But not once, even as the older brother was, was belching all of this stuff out, was there the sense that the father was shifting in his loyalty to the older brother either. He loved them both, and he refused to make a choice one between the other. The older brother was saying, make a choice. You choose, you want, why did you choose him over me? That wasn't the point. But to the older brother, that was the only point. That was the only point. But when this son of yours came, verse 30, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, my child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. In other words, the inheritance is not going to be divided a second time. The word for estate, give to me what is coming out of the estate, that meant living. That, that wasn't necessarily dollars or, or, or gold coins or, or, or currency. It, it, was, it was what allowed the family to make a living. It would more than likely have been sheep, goats, the harvest from the, from, from the vines and those kinds of things. Well, the cattle continued to produce after their kind. The goats continued to produce after their kind. The younger brother took his part, sold it, cashed out, spent it, wasted it. But what was left continued to make a profit, continued to build. The father says, my son, what belongs to me, all of it, now belongs to you. You won't be cheated. There's some things that the younger brother lost that he would never regain. But the thing that the younger brother lost that he really didn't lose was the loyalty of his father, the love of his father, the place in his father's heart to always be his son. No matter how far he had strayed, no matter what he had done, no matter what he had been with, The older son would be the beneficiary of the restoration of the full family's estate. It's not unfair. It's very fair. It's very merciful. But then he says, verse 32. See, he got the, the Lord in the story. The Lord dealt with that. I thought, you know, are we going to do this all over again? He's just going to do the same thing again. No, there won't be a subdividing one more time of the state. He got that settled, but then this part, and this is what the older brother, a type of the Pharisees, the, 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 the religiously elite that got all the scripture down, all the songs memorized, all the, Bible, all, the, all the proper performance of staying away from stuff and doing certain other things, but we had to be merry. We had to rejoice. For this brother of yours, not no longer son of mine, but this brother of yours, this brother of yours was dead and has come to life and was lost and has been found. The father's heart, loyal, strong. Kind. You see Jesus positioning himself by design right square in the middle of the two poles. 
He wasn't siding with the Pharisees who could quote chapter and verse as to all the reasons why these folks ought to be punished, these folks ought to be ostracized, these folks ought to be cast out. He didn't position him there because that attitude, please hear this, that attitude is a violation of the Father's heart. That is not an accurate representation of the Father's heart because the Father does never give up on mercy. The Pharisees, that group, the religiously elite, have a tendency to just give up on mercy. Just back away. Adjust our theology. Find certain verses but completely alleviate, remove yourself from the life of Jesus. To justify a position where the morally despicables to us, we have every right in the world to shun, to ignore, to judge, to criticize, to separate ourselves from. You can create scripture you, you, can, you can structure Scripture to say just about anything you want it to say. The devil knows that. That's why in the temptations, he threw Scripture at Jesus. When he understood Jesus was going to be responding with Scripture at every temptation, the devil started quoting Scripture. Just because somebody can quote the Bible does not mean that it is the Spirit of God behind it. You take the scripture and you run cross country as quick as you can to the gospels of Jesus Christ and look at how Jesus fleshed that out. Then you get the proper interpretation. So Jesus was not siding with the Pharisees against the tax gatherers and sinners. Nor was he over here condoning everything that the tax gatherers and the sinners were choosing to do. But he understood that their conclusion was that if all these God people have rejected us, don't want to have anything to do with us, then that must mean that God has rejected us. We're too far gone. We're too hopeless. There's no reason to ever try to turn around because we would never be accepted by God Jesus had to step right into that strongly. So wait a minute. You're like a sheep that's strayed, but the shepherd misses you. The shepherd counted up and you're gone, and he's coming after you to find you. The Lord wants you back. He doesn't want you in hell. He wants you back in his embrace. He's like the sun, that when the sun came to himself, wanted to come home, that that day of his arrival was the sweetest and best day of his life. Oh, folks, 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 we've got to be representing Jesus, his heart in all directions, not siding with the ones who judge are the ones who would just be saying, there's no hope, there's no use in trying to turn around. Therefore, oh goodness, here, here's Saul, Paul. Therefore, if any man or any woman be in Christ, he is a brand new creation. The old things are passed away and everything <laughs> has become new. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's not some religious structure. It's not some theological positioning that alleviates the warmth of the flow of the love of God and the reality of his presence. It's Jesus alive conveying the same truths that he expressed in your Bible. And you know what? He's not here walking the face of this earth in a human form, but you are, we are, Christ in me is my hope of glory.
as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. I don't mean this ugly. And I don't mean that everybody's involved in it. But I'm telling you, folks, you have permission to have friends who don't understand Christian talk. You have permission from the example of Jesus to pursue relationships that would turn into friendships, friendships that are going to need to be cultivated because the Lord knows over time things can happen. Open eyes can be had as living in this life is tough and it can be a challenge and the ones that seem to be so far away can come to their senses like this, this boy did. He, he learned that to repent. The word to repent means to know after. We mentioned that last week, to know after. To know after. I know some things now after what I went through. You could have told me about it and told me about it and explained it to me, drawn me pictures of it, and I still wouldn't have gotten it here. But because of what I have been through, man, I see it. To repent after what I now know, I'm turning to the Lord. Oh, listen, folks. You got somebody you love and care about who's, who's out in a far country's far country. But you're, it's still in your heart to pray for them. Mercy hadn't gone out of your life. You're, you're frustrated, but you just can't give up. It's because God hadn't given up on them. And they may, may take the south side of the backside of Antarctica, far country, for them to finally know now, know after. What they didn't know, they didn't see it here. That's why they didn't change here. They weren't responsive here. But now, now they know. Isn't that something? Isn't that something how that works? So that, that, that's, why, that's why you can't give up on the mercy of God. The Lord is loyal in the seasons of straying. He's loyal to not give up in those times because he knows that there are just going to be some things folks have to go through in order to learn something that they didn't know before. And as a result of what they've learned, now they can make a choice. Now they can make a decision. Now there can be a course correction because of what they now know. How many of you would say that happened to you? Just, just that there was a, you know, you, people looked at you and said, you're crazy, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why don't you understand? Why are you doing that? It was like it, it, that meant something to everybody else except you. But when you went through what you went through, you got it. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, one of, the most, one of the most encouraging parts of this whole section is when you stop and think, Jesus understood to that degree the human psyche, the, 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 the relationship within families, the pull of emotional, and Jesus even used the term, he spent his wealth on harlots. He understood the pull of the sexual temptation. Those were the words of Jesus. You don't have to write him an email to tell him what you're struggling with. He knows. And he loves you. Not just when you get it all figured out. Not just when you get it straight. He's loyal to you in his love right now. If you've given your heart to him and are trusting him. He is, the father has become your father through relationship with Jesus' his son. All right? Y'all are quiet, but I, I'm telling you, that's good news. It's just good news all the way through that. Now, now next week, I'm, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, Luke 7, 36, it's the story of one of these immoral ones who more than likely hung with the tax gatherers, a woman now, an immoral woman who heard that Jesus 
had accepted an invitation in a Pharisee's home to have supper. The woman finds out about that. And she shows up at the Pharisee's house. Uninvited guest, but she shows up and she has carrying with her something that is called an alabaster vial filled with expensive perfume. And she stands up behind Jesus. They're at, they didn't have chairs. They just leaned over and they ate off the table and their feet were about behind them. She stands behind him, sobbing her eyes out, tears flowing out of her eyes. They're coming down upon his feet. She takes her hair and she wipes off his dusty, now muddy feet and works the perfume into his feet. Pharisee to himself, it says, well, if this was a real prophet, he's still checking Jesus out. If this is a real prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is and who's touching him. And then Jesus tells that story. He says, Simon, I want to I tell you a story. A master has two servants. One of them owes the master five days' wages. The other owes the master 50 days' wages. The master decides to just forgive them both. Just out of the goodness of his heart, just forgive them both. And then he says, Simon... Which one of those servants will love the master more? Simon the Pharisee says, well, I suppose the one that he forgave the most. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. This woman whose sins are many <laughs> has been forgiven. She loves much because she has been forgiven much. He who has been forgiven little loves little. You know, there are folks that have found me over the years and pull me off to the side and they say, Pastor, I want to ask you something. And I say, well, shoot. And they'll say, where'd you get these people? <laughs> Talking about Alamo City. Where'd you get these people? Where'd you get these men? Where'd these women come from? Because what happens is, when just the name Jesus comes up in the hearing of some of our brothers and our sisters, just the mention of his name. And tears start filling up the corners and the edges of the eyes. And grown men, grown men, menly men, grown men shaking their heads, not able to speak. And they would say to me later, Pastor, it's because of what I know the Lord has forgiven me of. It's because of all the things I know I did that he forgave me of. The ones who are forgiven much, love much. And when you've been forgiven much, and you're around other folks, and you realize that some of them may be going through the same stuff you went through, the thing that works in your heart is, thank God that the mercy of God didn't give up on me. 
and I'm believing, I'm trusting, and that's why with open arms and welcome, that's hospitality thing. It's not phony. It's the real deal. We love being together because we love knowing and rehearsing what the Lord has done for us, but we love expressing the hope that no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've been there, Jesus Christ is strong in his mercy. He's strong in his love. And if he needs to chase you down, if he needs to search for you until he finds you, he'll do it. But if he in his mercy knows, he just needs to wait for you. Just wear yourself out. Just wait for you to wear yourself out. Then he loves you still. And he'll wait for you to come home. This isn't a perfect place. This isn't, we're not perfect people. But you can tell, you can tell when somebody really loves the Lord with their hearts. Jesus says there's a key, there's a trigger. The one who has been forgiven much and knows it loves much. So your loyalty then is not to a building, to a preacher, to a denomination. Your loyalty is the one who forgave you. <laughs> Your loyalty is the one who loves you, is to the one who loves you. Oh, my goodness. May we be that, live that out more and more and more and more and more and more all the days of our life. The Lord, I thank you for every person in this room. I thank you for the ones who are watching and listening Thank you that you are saying to us by your spirit, trust me, trust me. Lord, help us to be able to just trust you, not in ourselves, not in people, but help us to be able to trust you. And then, Lord, I ask you in the name of Jesus to implant within us your heart for people, your heart for people. Give us, Lord, your heart for people. Regardless of which end of the spectrum of moral precision or moral error, they may be or we may be. Lord, would you give us your heart for people and would you help us to understand, most importantly of all, your heart for us, that you are loyal, that you are strong, and you are kind. In Jesus' name.